In 2022, 274 million people are in need of humanitarian assistance and protection. Preventing, mitigating and responding to humanitarian crises is a challenge. Can fiction and storytelling play a role? Can it raise awareness and motivate action to address the causes and consequences of humanitarian crises? My name is Ruth Mukwana and I host the Saha podcast, Stories and Humanitarian Action. Welcome to Saha, Stories and Humanitarian Action. I have a great show for you today. Before I jump into the show, I'd like to ask you to subscribe to my YouTube channel, like, comment, and if you enjoy this video, please share it. My guest today is Anna McDonald, who is a communications and campaigns consultant and currently human rights practitioner in residency at Columbia Law School. She led the international campaign for the Arms Trade Treaty the world's first global treaty to regulate conventional arms and ammunition, best human rights and humanitarian law. She is writing a book on the lessons learned from the campaign and how international law is made. She was previously director of the Control Arms Coalition and prior to that worked at Oxfam for 18 years, leading campaigns on humanitarian issues. She has been a consultant for the United Nations on Strategic Communications. Welcome to the show, Anna. Thanks. It's nice to be here. Thank you. And thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me. I'm very excited to speak to you, especially because when we last spoke, um, you were telling me about your passion for storytelling. Now, I know what you've been working on is nonfiction. But before we get into fiction, which is really the focus of this show, I'm very curious about your own work in storytelling and first, I'd like to ask you, what inspired you to focus on storytelling and communications? Um, well, I think stories are how we all make sense of the world and how we all learn about things. And um, I know for myself, when I uh, first got involved in humanitarian work, when I had my first opportunity um, to go overseas from my own country, it was often the stories that I was hearing from people and the stories I was talking to people about that were that made me feel passionate about wanting to get involved in the work. Um, so I think and I think it's important to, you know, try to share that um, more widely. I think there's often a bit of a tendency in humanitarian work to think that because it's a serious subject, we have to start with data and statistics and facts and figures. And those are really important to to back things up, but they're rarely the thing that gets you hooked. It's not, no one tends to feel that passionate because they've heard a compelling piece of data. It's normally the story of somebody that you've heard that's moved you in some way that, that, that gets you interested. Yeah, and I'm glad you say that because part of the reason I'm, I'm really, really very, very passionate about fiction and storytelling is precisely because of the focus on data and statistics. But I'm going to come back to that a bit later because there's an article I actually um, would like us to speak about. Tell me about your recent project in Palestine and what that was about and why Palestine? Um, well, it was a project across UN agencies and NGOs, both international um, and local. And we were collectively looking at how we could try to change the narrative around Palestine. One of the problems, I think, in a, a situation that's been very long standing, and you know, there's been a 
persistent humanitarian crisis in in Palestine for many decades is that it tends to have a, a certain image um, in the in the public eye. And unfortunately, when it comes to Palestine, public perceptions generally are negative. And that's a problem because if people's perceptions of a place and of a people are negative, then they're far less likely to feel receptive to your message, to empathise with the stories that you're telling and far less likely to want to take action. It's with Palestine, people have a tendency to switch off because it's all it's all too difficult. It's all too overwhelming. Nothing could be done. It's just a you know unique situation. And, um, terrorism is involved somehow and that's scary. And so, you know, it's easier to switch off and not not get engaged. So what we were trying to do was look at how we could use a, a storytelling approach in our in our narrative to talk about um, ordinary people um, centering Palestinians within their own story um, and telling uh, their stories, their narrative in a way that would generate a, a greater degree of empathy, focusing more on what is the same between anybody and anybody else. So what's common for, for people in Palestine in their lives, that's common to all of us, what is common in our hopes and aspirations and dreams, focusing more on um, uh, what makes us the same rather than what makes us different as a starting point. And then it's easier to, to try to uh, get that level of interest and engagement and then go in more into perhaps some of the more complicated or, or difficult issues. Um, and it was a really, and it's a, it's obviously, it's a difficult place to work. It's, um, there is a lot of intensity of, uh, pressure in the work there and intensity of politics right. in the region, of course. But it was extremely positive in terms of the engagement that we got, both from people that we were working with in, in country, but also from public audiences that we were communicating with, like trying, trying this approach and a lot of enthusiasm from colleagues, um, on the ground in, in, in this as well. Okay. And and what kind of engagement did you were you able to get through this project? So what we were looking at, um one area we were looking at in particular was um social media. Um both because that's a, a way to, to reach a large amount of people and also because that's where sometimes negative paradigms or negative um, stories can exist and we wanted to to counter that um, and we found that we got a much higher level of engagement from people um, with social media posts when they focused on an individual story than when they began with facts or figures and that varied from like a 400 percent increase in some cases up to three thousand percent increase in the level of engagement so it, it's really quite dramatic if you begin with telling the the, the story of a person and particularly if that person is able to tell uh, you're able to their story in their own words, um, people are much more likely to stop scrolling, have a look at it, engage with it, like it, share it, do something with that story than just continuing to, to go past it. So in terms of showing that um, appealing to people with with that approach is successful. I'd say that was that was very positive. I mean, it's you know, it, it would take a long time to try to completely change the way in which people are going to perceive of a situation that has been so long standing. But it's a positive start to have been able to begin to do that. Right. And what are some of the stories that you were able to tell? Um, I mean, there were stories of, it was a mix really, because partly, um, I would say particularly around Gaza, people have very negative um, perceptions from outside of, um, outside of Palestine. People think of Gaza, they think of terrorism, they think of war and conflict. So what we were starting with there was to try to show that the 
hopes, aspirations and dreams of young people in Gaza, it's a very youthful population, are the same as those of young people in any other country. So we had a series of stories called Gaza Dreams where we were profiling um, young people who were involved in different entrepreneurial activities, um, who were studying in different ways, um, who were doing things in their community. And they were they were talking about um, what they were doing, what their interests were, but then also bringing in what some of their constraints might be what some of the pressures and challenges were that they were facing. So we weren't kind of trying to shy away from the problems of a, of a people who are totally enclosed and blockaded in, but we were trying to begin by focusing on, on their dignity and by focusing on their own story. Right. And I'm glad you talk about dignity because this is one of the challenges, I guess, that we are always talking about, suddenly in the humanitarian sector. How do we have a dignity approach? that centers and gives um, the people we are working for agency. Um, you've mentioned statistics and data a, a couple of times, and, um, and you also shared with me you know, a couple of articles on storytelling. Um, but there is this one that I have I just read and I've been blown away by it because to me it kind of goes very – it kind of opposes everything that I thought data and scale would do. So – this research by Paul, Paul and Daniel, Paul Solovich and Daniel Vasfall. I hope I'm pronouncing that name correctly. And the title of the research is The More Who Die, The Less We Care, Psychic Numbing and Genocide. And the article talks about insensitivity to mass suffering. And I'm just going to read the opening summary from the article where basically the, what they are, the hypothesis in a way is that Define, the defining element of catastrophes is the magnitude of their harmful consequences. To help society prevent or mitigate damage from catastrophes, immense effort and technological sophistication are often employed to assess and communicate the size and scope of potential or actual losses. This effort assumes that people can understand the resulting numbers and act on them appropriately. But their research shows that many people don't understand large numbers, and large numbers lack meaning and, and are underweighted in decisions unless they convey affect or feeling. And I think this is what you're speaking to, and maybe you can just share a little bit about your perspectives, also keeping this research in mind. Yeah, I, th I mean, I think it's, it's fascinating research. Um, and it, it, it sounds strange at first, but I think we can kind of see it happening in the way people react to things on the news or just generally um, across social media. And it's this it's this paradox that we can all care intensely, passionately about the story of a single person. So and we see that so many times, you know, the child that's caught under the rubble still, the last one to be rescued at the in the aftermath of an earthquake. There can be a tremendous outpouring of, of empathy and people donating money and wanting to help. Um, similarly, the story of one refugee child um, stuck in a traumatic situation, there can be a tremendous um, outpouring and desire to do something. But as when the numbers rise, 
we can't comprehend it. Like large numbers are difficult. So it tends to have this opposite effect. And it's really interesting when you look at the research and literally as the numbers of people suffering rise, the amount of um, uh, compassion and urgency that is felt goes down. So as you say, it is the opposite of what we might have conventionally thought in humanitarian communications, that we must convey that thousands or hundreds of thousands of people are affected by this particular crisis. Actually, it's a bit more effective to focus in on, on an individual story to be able to illustrate how the crisis, whether it be um, something environmental or whether it be a, a conflict or war that somebody is fleeing um, or otherwise affected by, to, sh- to tell that story of how they're affected and then contextualize it in the, in the bigger um, picture. Because it, what, what's also interesting in similar research is showing that the way, even the way that people donate is, is affected by this. So again, we we feel like if we hear the story of one person, if we donate $10, $50, whatever, we're going to have an impact on that person. But if we think we're donating to one person out of 10,000 people, somehow we feel that's not going to make a difference. And if it's one person out of 100,000 people, it feels like a drop in the ocean, so we're just not going to bother because it's not going to make a difference. And like logically, that rationally, that doesn't make sense because that $10 is still $10, whether it's one, you know, t- towards that one person, whether they're one, one person by themselves or one out of a hundred thousand, but it's the effect that those large numbers have. And I think what that leads us to in communications is, is this importance of breaking down those numbers in, in ways that make it easier for us all to comprehend. And, and sometimes that's about just breaking numbers down in a, in a, in a smaller way, like instead of talking about, of young people being unemployed, saying three out of four is just a little bit easier for us automatically to to relate to that. And sometimes it is about focusing in on those individual stories, which can then exemplify the, the bigger problem. Yeah, no, I mean, I actually encourage everyone to, to read it. I know it was done in 2015. But I found it, uh, it just kind of like I kept going, like, oh, my goodness, this is so counterintuitive. To, to what I would have thought. Um, and of course, we use big data because uh, in the humanitarian sector and, and so many other countries working on crisis, it's always trying to communicate the scale of it with the hope that when we understand the scale, we are going to galvanize this support uh, for, for, for the response. And the article as well, and I think the research rather, but you've also mentioned it, it basically comes down to this ability to connect and humans, people tend to connect at the individual level. And I, I, I do, they actually do um, reference uh, fiction or storytelling as a way or as a vehicle or tool to actually help. And here again, I'll just read uh, a quote from the, from the research that refers to King Silver, who's done actually a lot of uh, research on storytelling, fiction and, and empathy. And here, basically, the quote from, from her research or her book is, a newspaper could tell you that 100 people, say, in an airplane or in Israel or in Iraq have died today, and you can think to yourself, how very sad. Then turn the page and see how the world cuts fared. But a novel could take just one of those 100 lives and show exactly how it felt to be that person. You could test that person's breakfast and love, and love her family and sort through her worries as your own, and know that a death in that household will be the end of the only life that someone will ever will ever have, as important as yours, as important as mine. Um, and that's basically 
you know, but, you know, um, King Silver's work on, on, on fiction and empathy. And I, the reason I wanted to actually read the quote from her work is because I thought that um, this would be a good segue for us to talk about the book that I would like us to speak about today, What is the What by Dev Eggers. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. And first I'm going to ask you to just tell us what this book is about. Um, so it's about um, Valentino Deng, um, who was um, at the time a, a boy in South Sudan, who became um, one of what was known as the, the Lost Boys, the group of children who trekked from South Sudan, escaping conflict there, um, and eventually made their way through to, to Kenya to a refugee camp, and then for some of them, resettlement in, in other countries, including the United States. Um, so it's a collaboration between Valentino Deng, whose whose real story it is, and Dave Eggers, the writer, the novelist, who has who has taken the story that Valentino told him and turned it into um, into a novel. So it is it's it's based on the the real story, but it's written in the first person, and he's taken you know some artistic license with the with with some of the events that happen and um, using a bit of a flashback mechanism as well in how he's telling the story. And I think it's really powerful because, firstly, because it is in the first person. And I think that's one of the most powerful ways to tell a story, because I think what we're saying in the story is important, but also who's telling the story is important. And the most powerful way for someone to own their story is when it's in their own words. So I think stories in the first person are immensely powerful. And then also it's, it's interesting, I think, because it's a, it's a story of like a series of really like horrific events. I mean, what these, uh, children pass through on their, uh, on their long, um, trek across Sudan are, you know, some horrific event, events of, of violence, of suffering, of starvation and of death, um, and of, of, of abuse. And yet somehow the book's in, imbued with hope. And it's because the, uh, I think the, the, the writer Dave Eggers like manages to really capture the hope of, of the central character. Um, and I was uh, fortunate to, to work with Valentino Deng a little bit when he came to support our, our work on arms campaigning um, at the UN. And he is just as he is described in the book. He's a, he's a very humble, but very hopeful, positive character. And I think that comes across really well in the book. And the other thing that is very good about it is that it's a page turner. It's very suspenseful, even though you kind of know what's happening because obviously, you know, the guy's alive because he's, um, he's written about on the book and it's a collaboration, but you still, you know, you're kind of wondering what's going to happen and you're turning the page because it's got those elements of suspense and drama that are essential to, to any good story. Right? It's got to have a plot. Um, so I think all of those things coming together make it a, um, a really powerful story, which it's, it's odd to say that you, you can find a story about such a terrible series of events as enjoyable, but it, it kind of is because I think you can enjoy good writing and you can enjoy the the ultimate message of of hope that it that it brings right and and i i i was reading as i was preparing to speak to you i i read the book myself quite a, a while ago and i'm hoping we can read some excerpts uh from it if that's okay and you can you know choose select do you have it with you do you have a copy with you uh, unfortunately, I don't have it with me. I, I, uh, I'm, I most recently read a, um, a library copy actually when I went, when I went back to read it. So I, I haven't got one in front of me, I'm afraid. Okay. No, no worries. We'll skip the reading part. 
but I, I read it a while ago myself. It is quite a big book, but I guess because of the way it's it's written, it's just very compelling. It's very easy to to read. Um, one of the things, and it's one of those books I feel that you can read. A lot of people, probably here in America especially, have heard about the Lost Boys. Um, and now, recently, in, in the last few years as well, there's been, you know, about the lost girls, because there were also girls among uh, this group of, of boys. Um, and the sheer suffering that they went through, which you're talking to, but it does really, when you read it, you learn so much about that war and how it, it affected uh, this group of children and how they ended up in America, but I want to talk to you a little bit about his experience in America, and actually the, the book itself starts with this incident that happens um, when he's, I think, in somewhere in America, I can't remember what state. In Atlanta. But if you remember, Georgia, if you yeah. just, uh, yeah, in Atlanta, yeah. yeah. But what, what, what is your take on that incident uh, when it's happening? And maybe you can describe it and just we can talk about so the, it. Yeah, the book starts, um, because it's got this kind of flashback format, so it begins with him in, um, in Atlanta, Georgia, and he's in the apartment that he's been kind of resettled in, into, um, uh, finally coming out from the refugee camp in Kenya. And this incident happens basically where these people break into, into his home and he gets, they tie him up and he's, he's, he's robbed and he's lying there. And as he's lying there, um, tied up, afraid, wondering what's going to happen, they're violent towards him at one point. He then, his mind goes back to, to South Sudan and that's when his story begins and it comes back and forth with that. So you're kind of following two stories. You're wondering what's going to happen in this kind of semi hostage situation. And then you're you're wondering what's what's happening in South Sudan. And as you say, it it quite brilliantly tells the story of one person, but actually tells the story of millions of people um, through through doing that. And I think what's also interesting about talking about his life in America is that it it also um, shines a light on on challenges within the U.S. as well, because it's cover it, you know, it's covering racism, it's covering. Um, the perceptions that people have of, of people from South Sudan when they arrive, people's perceptions of refugees. In the, in the second, um, uh, section of the book, he, he, um, he comes out of that, that, that situation and he goes to hospital and in the hospital, he, he just can't get seen. He's waiting for hours and hours and hours. And again, you know, it, it kind of reflects on another challenge in America, the structural challenges that exist around healthcare here. So it, I think it's good because sometimes, Books that are about humanitarian crisis can always be like, you know, all the problems are like over there. Um, and like, we're great over here and we've rescued people. And it, it's, it's not as simple as that. Of course, the real narrative is, is way more complex. And I think it's, I think it's an intriguing part of the book that it, it, it explores that. And I also think that, you know, what I think two things that fiction can do really well that are, that are positive in, in, in our field is that firstly, they can remove fear. And I think so many of the problems that exist today around around racism, around prejudice of any kind, and ultimately around conflict are based on fear, fear of the other. And what a, a, a book can do, what fiction can do, it, it can take away that fear. Because if you hear of the lost boys as a mass, or you hear of refugees, like mass nouns frighten people. It just sounds like a mass of people and we're scared of it. But you read the story of Valentino, you're, you're not afraid of him. This is a real person. This is a, a person, you know, with all the human flaws that, 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 a, that a person has. And 
that fear is is removed and that's a that's a really positive step toward towards empathy and i think the second thing fiction does is it can allow you to imagine an alternative because what a fiction writer can do is they can put in whatever ending or scenario they want so it can take you to a different imagined reality and i think that's really positive too because we need to not just be trying to work against the bad things that are happening. We need to be working towards the good things we want to happen and being able to have that vision and having that kind of clarity, you know, that picture in your mind of what things could be in a positive way is, is really important to, to increasing our, our understanding and empathy. Yeah. And, and I have so many questions for you from all that you've just said. Um, it could also be like for me, I'm from Uganda, so South Sudan is just our neighboring country. And I worked in South Sudan uh, twice in my life. Uh, and maybe I was much familiar with the, the situation and, and what the people of South Sudan had gone through this, you know, these this decades of war. But when I read the book, and I think to me that's why you're kind of also mentioning, it's really struck me that Valentino is here and, and he's saying, Finally, I made it to America, and but I'm still waiting for peace. I'm still, um, I kind of, I guess there was a sense that he had hoped he would get here and all will be well. Um, but when the book starts, in fact, he's still trying to get his credits, if I remember, to get into college, and, and that just wasn't easy. He's still trying to work, you know, really difficult or long hours or, me, or in the middle of the night at this health club, trying to make ends meet. And maybe you can talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah, I mean, I think, it again, it helps present a more, you know, holistic, real story of, 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 of someone's life. And I, yeah. I, I think sometimes also in, in humanitarianism, we can, what we think we're telling as a story is sometimes a, a photo and a caption. And that, that isn't a story, you know, that can be very two dimensional. We, we, we show a photo, a, a picture of someone or a photo of somebody and there's a caption underneath saying, you know, Mohammed's struggling in his life as a farmer or Mohammed's had his land taken away from him. And what that does is it, we only know about Mohammed because of the negative things that have happened to him. Right. And, and over time, if that's all you see about a people, then it, it leads to this almost kind of colonial lens, I think, where we're only seeing people as kind of passive recipients of harm that's happening to them, where they have no agency. And they're also two dimensional because we're only hearing about the bad things that are happening to Mohammed. We don't know whether maybe he loves playing football at the weekend. Maybe he likes music in the evenings. Maybe he does, you know, whatever. But we don't know that because we're only seeing this, this snapshot and this caption. And what, and what's good when you're able to delve into a fuller story is that you can see more of the person. And it's, it's that what, what makes somebody human and what makes somebody relatable is seeing, you know, more of their, their full character, their personality, their trials and tribulations. And I think what makes a, a novel ultimately uh, gripping is when somebody is triumphing triumphs over adversity and that's kind of the, the arc that what is the what takes you through is this kind of long road to triumphing uh, to his ultimate triumph over adversity but there's a lot of you know bumps in the way it's not a, it's not a kind of smooth straight up there's lots of lots of challenges that he's overcoming or seeking to overcome no and you're absolutely right um Again, I, I guess the other part to it as well, I always, reading the book because I mean, Valentino is so developed, 
as a, as as a person, as 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 a character in the book, and and somehow I was so invested in him, even as he's going through this these tragedies, this suffering. You're always invested in him and rooting for him to succeed. And I also liked um, seeing him, you know, falling in love, looking forward to getting married. And I guess that's the, the part about it that I felt was so powerful, even as I'm receiving all of this other information around the situation in South Sudan that, 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 that he, he sort of left but talking about also the suspense of the book, the style, the plot, there's another article you shared with me, and I can't remember even the title now, I don't know if you do, but I think something about storytelling. And it talks about um, people are very drawn to plot and, you know, basically stories help them find this character that they want to succeed and they get invested in the success uh, of, of that character. Is this something you can talk about as well? Yeah, I think that's um, uh, Paul Zak, who's done kind of research into people's brain patterns when they are watching a story, like watching a movie or, yeah. they're, or they're reading a story. And he's found that basically um, emotional arcs in stories produce oxytocin in, in our brains, and that prompts us to feel empathy. And he's basically saying that an emotionally um, compelling story prompts people to to act afterwards. Um, and you, you, we kind of know that intuitively, you know, like it's the way when you come out of an action movie, you feel kind of all pumped up because you've been watching the action movie. Or if you're watching a, a you know, a long romance that, that has a sad ending, you, you, you yourself, you know, you feel sad at the end or yeah. um, you might feel, you know, having, having romantic thoughts yourself. Like, so we kind of know that. But when you when you think about it in terms of all of the stories we tell, then it starts to make sense that the way that we're telling stories is really important um, in terms of the reactions that people are going to have. And if we want people to be um, emotionally invested, and I think that was a good good way of putting it with the, the character Valentino, but if we want people to be emotionally invested in the stories that we're telling, then we need to be telling them in a, in a way that is compelling. Um, I, I really like, I and mean, it's not, not fiction, but um, on the factual side, I really like um, Humans of New York and uh, Brandon Stanton's work and the way that he always manages to bring out the human in whoever it is that he's talking to. And I know he's approaching random people on, on the street and he's getting them to tell their story. And he obviously he's a great interviewer, a great storyteller, because he always has this knack of pulling out the essence of a really compelling or interesting story and who, whoever it is. Um, and it's so interesting when you when you watch him posting them on Facebook or Instagram, because when he serializes them, there are like tens, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people around the world, like gripped, waiting for the next instalment. And if it's like, you know, one part out of nine, everyone's really waiting because they want to know what is going to happen. And it's so, you know, it's exciting. I was reading one recently and I think it was a, it's about a young man. I think he was from Ghana. Um, he was in the US when he arrived here. He was having a really hard time um, with racism and also economically he was a student. Um, and he goes through this story, but basically at the end of the story, he ends up setting up um, a school of photography, a library of uh, photography resources back in his home country of Ghana. But the kind of story, the narrative of him getting there is really quite gripping and you become very invested in him as the character and you're really rooting for him to do that. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's a really 
um, powerful way that uh, Brandon Stanton is is taking it's people's own words, but he's editing editing them in such a sequence that really makes you engage in their stories and really makes you kind of root for them. And you can see at the end of them, you know, often there's a fundraiser or something and people just donate like, you know, uh, yeah. sometimes millions in a short amount of time. And I think it's not always that we want people to donate money. Often, in fact, we want people to take action more than we want them to take money. But you can just see by that reaction that people want to do something. Often donating money is the easiest thing to yeah. do. But if they're presented with a real story and it's compelling and you can see yourself in it, it's relatable. You, you want to do something to help that person. Like mo- most of us do I think it you know there is generally an inherent good in us where we want to help others but it's it's and part of our job is as humanitarians is being able to chart that that path to make it easier for people to be able to take action to help others I think that's part of our role in communications is you know is, is laying that path out and saying yes you can do something yes it is worth doing something and here's what you can do yeah and I'm glad so you, you you know you talk about the, this I mean Brandon's work as well and again as I was listening to you again I'm thinking is it still going back to that element of the individual when you're focusing on this one person and telling their story so that people then feel they can do something to help and invest in the success of uh, this person yeah, it seems to be. And I, I was um, talking to a, a colleague at UNHCR um, and they did some really interesting research where they saw that even introducing one more person into a story, so two people rather than one, had a slightly depressing effect on the level of reaction and response. They definitely like one person, people relate and each right. extra person that you add into that story, it might still be interesting, but you're getting a, a lower reaction. So it really points to that individual story central character as being um you know one of the most important factors in in being able to to tell a story in a compelling way right now again thank you so much uh anna for sharing all of this and uh also for sharing about your work um is your your book the book you're writing is this something you you're talking about is that something you like um I, I guess it is in a bigger sense when i was reflecting on this i was thinking actually that you know in in campaigning and advocacy like essentially we are trying to tell stories all the time and it's you know we're telling them in different formats sometimes you're telling them it directly to decision makers right and you're trying to convince politicians to take a certain course of action or you're trying to convince diplomats representatives of countries to do something but essentially you're telling a story you're presenting uh, a situation you're, you're you're saying what it's like now but you're also presenting what it could be like right it's that that sort of challenge choice and outcome of a, of a story that we're presenting um whether we're doing that verbally in a, in a kind of advocacy meeting or whether we're, we're writing it down so i think in a in a broader sense yes and and definitely i'm i'm trying in the book to tell the story of the many thousands of people that were involved in in making this treaty happen um and that you know the, the 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 kind of challenges setbacks and then moving forward that that we were collectively involved in Right, no, and, and I really wish you luck <laughs> with this book and uh, of course I can't wait for it to be out so I can read it. Anna, this brings me to the end of my interview. Do you have any questions for me? Uh, I feel like we've, we've, we've covered a lot, but thank you very much for the, the opportunity to talk about it. No, thank you so much. Um, 
Yeah, thank you so much. And, uh, you know, I'm sure uh, I hope you have uh, you enjoy the rest of the day. And I, I hope we'll speak again soon. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, if you enjoyed this video, please subscribe to my YouTube channel. Comment, like, and share it. If you'd like more information about this show, you can find more information on my Twitter, which is Ruth underscore Mukwana. That is R-U-T-H underscore M-U-K-W-A-N-A. Or on my website, www.ruthmukwana.com. I'd like to thank Jamal Swift, who is my co-producer, and Nomadic Band for the music. Thank you. Goodbye.